The murderer must have been a man of physical strength and of great coolness and daring. He must, in my opinion, be a man subject to periodical attacks of homicidal and erotic mania, but quite likely to be a quiet, inoffensive-looking man, probably middle-aged and neatly and respectably dressed. I think he must be in the habit of wearing a cloak or overcoat, or he could hardly have escaped notice in the streets if the blood on his hands or clothes were visible. Welcome to Season 2 of Psychologia, the podcast where we explore the science behind why we do what we do. I'm your host, Amaya Perta. When I tell people that I'm studying forensic psychology, about 90% of them ask me, in one way or another, if that means I'm going to become a profiler. The profession is certainly among the most widely depicted forensic psychology careers, and it's almost definitely one of the most interesting, at least as it's shown in most media. But true criminal profiling is a bit different, less flashy, and far less precise. Its evolution reveals a great deal about attitudes concerning psychology's ability to predict crime, and its history has several fascinating origin stories, three of which we will explore in this episode. First, let's clarify the definition of criminal profiling. Profiling is the process of drawing inferences about a criminal's personality, behavior, motivation, and demographic characteristics based on crime scenes and other evidence. The modern technique of profiling was pioneered by the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit, BSU, in Quantico, Virginia. Other names for the process include retroclassification and criminal investigative analysis. As you may be aware, it's most frequently and famously applied to cases involving serial killers, but of course, it can be used to investigate other crimes. Ideally, profiles are based on information gathered at crime scenes, information about the victim, and analysis of the police and autopsy reports. Once assembled, a profile can be used to provide police officers with leads or to help focus the efforts of investigators. If a profile is correct, it can even help to create a trap to catch a criminal or give officers information about what questions to ask or what areas to explore when questioning a suspect. Contrary to popular culture, however, profiling remains a fairly invalidated technique. One of the central foundation blocks of criminal profiling is the development of a criminal's signature. The signature is the distinctive personal aspect of the crime that, presumably, reveals the personality of the perpetrator. The thinking goes that if the signature can be discovered, then the criminal's motive or emotional drive will be uncovered, and this core purpose for the crime's execution, this unique identifier, 
will lead investigators right to the perpetrator's door. This model of crime solving is, of course, very difficult and often faulty. Just as a criminal is a human prone to error and slip-ups that may become his or her undoing, so too is the profiler. Again and again, profiles have been wrong, slowed down or misled investigations, and even caused further crimes or deaths. Today, however, I would like to focus on three incidences that helped to build up and then tear down the public's faith in criminal profilers and their ability to suss out and capture people whose crimes were not only mysterious, but downright frightening. The first of these cases is that of Jack the Ripper. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the events that took place in the Whitechapel area of London in 1888, but for those who need a brief recap, here it is. Between August and November of that year, five women were brutally murdered, and their killer was never found. All of the women, Mary Ann Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Edison, and Mary Jane Kelly, were known prostitutes, and all, except for Elizabeth, were horribly mutilated with a sharp weapon. For this reason, the murderer became known as Jack the Ripper. In the almost century and a half since these crimes took place, there's been a great deal of speculation about the identity of the Ripper. Many believe that he, or maybe she, must have been a butcher or a surgeon because the disfigurement of the victims' bodies seemed to indicate a familiarity with human anatomy. Some have speculated that the killer was a member of the royal family, Queen Victoria's grandson, Prince Albert Victor, to be precise, although there is spotty evidence to support this. Throughout the years, many, many people have spent countless hours trying to identify Jack the Ripper by profiling his behavior, movements, and murder style. But the first attempt was made in the midst of the killings in 1888. In the fall of that year, as police scrambled to catch a murderer bold enough to cut women to pieces in the open street, Dr. Thomas Bond formulated what might be considered the first modern criminal profile. After performing autopsies on the victim's remains, he wrote a report speculating about Jack's physical and psychological characteristics. You heard some of it at the top of this episode, but here is the full text. The murderer must have been a man of physical strength and of great coolness and daring. There is no evidence that he had an accomplice. He must, in my opinion, be a man subject to periodical attacks of homicidal and erotic mania. The character of the mutilations indicate that the man may be in a condition sexually that may be called satyriasis. It is, of course, possible that the homicidal impulse may have developed from a revengeful or brooding condition of the mind, or that religious mania may have been the original disease, but I do not think either hypothesis is likely. The murderer in external appearance is quite likely to be a quiet, inoffensive-looking man, probably middle-aged, 
and neatly and respectably dressed. I think he must be in the habit of wearing a cloak or overcoat, or he could have hardly escaped notice in the streets if the blood on his hands or clothes were visible. Assuming the murderer to be such a person as I have just described, he would probably be solitary and eccentric in his habits. Also, he is most likely to be a man without regular occupation, but with some small income or pension. He is possibly living among respectable persons who have some knowledge of his character and habits and who may have grounds for suspicion that he is not quite right in his mind at times. Despite this early stab at profiling, Jack the Ripper was never caught. But Dr. Bond became the first in a long line of people to create such a description of a criminal in hopes of solving a crime. The second case we will examine took place in the United States in the middle of the 20th century. Beginning in 1940, bombs began to appear in public spaces in New York City. The first was found, unexploded, on a windowsill of the building occupied by the Consolidation Edison Electric Company with the note reading, quote, Con Edison Crooks, this is for you. Over the next 16 years, 33 explosive devices were found in places like bathrooms and phone booths. 22 of them exploded, and 15 people were injured. Until his capture in 1957, the man behind these acts of terrorism was known only as the Mad Bomber. The Mad Bomber turned out to be a careful man in his mid-50s named George Metesky, who was obsessed with making explosives in his garage. He had a strange and inappropriate affect, and nearly all remaining photographs of him show a man with wide eyes and a broad face staring into the camera lens and, inexplicably, grinning. The hunt for Metesky took over a decade and a half. One of the innovations of the search was the first criminal profile created by a psychiatrist in the United States for use in an active investigation. That psychiatrist, Dr. James Brussel, studied the crime scenes, the letters sent by the bomber, and other details that the police had gathered, and developed a list of very specific characteristics. He stated that the offender would be a heavy-set, unmarried, middle-aged man living with a sibling. He predicted that he would be a Roman Catholic immigrant with a borderline obsessional love for his mother and a hatred for his father. He would be a skilled mechanic from Connecticut with a personal vendetta against Con Edison and, quote, chances are he will be wearing a double-breasted suit, buttoned. When the police finally found themselves on George Metesky's doorstep in Waterbury, Connecticut, thanks to the sharp-eyed observation of a Con Ed employee named Alice Kelly, who managed to link Metesky's personnel file to claims made in his letters to local newspapers, they found a surprising number of things that aligned with Brussels' profile. The Mad Bomber was indeed a heavy man in his 50s, living with his sister. He was born in the United States, but his parents were Lithuanian, and he was, indeed, Catholic. 
When the officers arrived at his home, he was wearing pajamas. And when he was told to get dressed to go to the station, Dr. Brussels' final prediction was proven eerily true. When Metesky returned from his bedroom, he had on a double-breasted suit, fully buttoned. After being indicted on 47 charges, including attempted murder and violation of the concealed weapon law, Metesky was found legally insane and incompetent to stand trial. And in 1957, he was sent to the Matiwan Hospital for the Criminally Insane in Beacon, New York. If you're curious about the legal process behind this law, check out our previous episode on the insanity defense. The final profile we will look at is that of the Olympic bomber, which, contrary to what you may be thinking after hearing about the mad bomber, perfectly exemplifies the danger of criminal profiling. In 1996, the Summer Olympics were held in Atlanta, Georgia. Centennial Olympic Park was designed and built to function as the event's town square, and on the night of July 27th, thousands of people had gathered there for a late concert and party. Around 1 o'clock a.m., a security guard named Richard Jewell came upon a green backpack stuffed beneath a bench. When he opened it, he found that it was packed with three pipe bombs. He immediately alerted the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and an evacuation began. Nine minutes later, a call was put in to 911 and a man claiming to be the bomber delivered a dire warning telling the operator about the bomb's placement. Thanks to Jewel, however, the area around the weapons was already mostly clear. Explosion rocked through the city of Atlanta at approximately 1.20 a.m. Eastern time on Saturday morning. It was in... When the, the bomb exploded, 13 minutes later, one person, Alice Hawthorne, was killed, and over 100 others were wounded. But Jewel had saved the lives of many. Or had he? In the aftermath, investigators scrambled to find the bomb maker. A profile was quickly put together, and the image of a lone bomb maker emerged. The FBI told officers to be on the lookout for a single white middle-class male with an intense interest in police work. And guess who fit this description? Suddenly, Richard Jewell, the man who had found the bomb and alerted the police, the man held as a hero, was a person of interest. The news media, which had been quick to praise him immediately after the incident, began to describe Jewel as a failed law enforcement officer, a wannabe who may have built and planted the bomb so that he could find it and be a savior. After three months of investigation, however, law enforcement declared Jewel cleared of suspicion. But it was too late and his reputation was destroyed. The following year, in 1997, bombs similar to those found at Olympic Park were detonated in an abortion clinic and a lesbian bar, and in 1998, Eric Robert Rudolph became the official suspect of all three attacks. He was captured in 2003, and he remains in prison. Richard Jewell, however, could not shake the shadow that had been attached to his name. 
Despite an unprecedented formal letter written to Jewell in October of 1996 by the investigating U.S. attorney, Kent Alexander, stating that, quote, based on the evidence developed to date, Richard Jewell is not considered a target of the federal criminal investigation into the bombing on July 27, 1996 at Centennial Olympic Park in Atlanta. And a public statement from U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno saying, quote, I'm very sorry it happened. I think we owe him an apology. Jewell's life was permanently affected by the cloud of suspicion caused by the criminal profile of the bomber. Well, this story started over here as me finding the bomb and being a hero. And by the time it got all the way around, I was the suspect and was the bomber of the Centennial Park. And they didn't care how it got from here to here. They just wanted the end. And that's one of the things that happened is there were so many little, um, little stories out there. And, and there was such a rush to get the story and get a scoop that a lot of these things were not followed up. They were not confirmed. And they just put them in print and set them on TV. There are also several scientific reasons to be skeptical of profiling. In 1990, Anthony Pinizzotto and Norman Finkel compared the accuracy of profiles produced by four different groups, undergrads, clinical psychologists, police with training, and police without training, and found that trained groups' profiles were significantly more accurate for sex offender cases only. Richard Cautious also compared profilers to other groups and found that the profilers were slightly better at guessing the physical characteristics of the murderer, but were less accurate than the other groups in inferring the thought processes, social habits, and personal history of the murderers. In fact, the accuracy rates of the profilers were generally less than 50%. In a survey of English police officers done by Gary Copson in 1995, criminal profiling was only marginally helpful and only led to the identification of a perpetrator 2.7% of the time. Additionally, most profiles are riddled with inaccuracies and inconsistencies which can lead to erroneous investigations and arrests, as seen in the Olympic bombing case. You know, just imagine when it's one camera or two or three reporters. Imagine how much heat that causes. I had thousands, thousands of cameras, tens of thousands of reporters on me. And in 2002, Andreas Mokros and Lawrence Allenson conducted a careful analysis of the characteristics of a hundred actual stranger rapes and the rapists who committed them, and found that there was no discernible demographic resemblance between the criminals who committed very similar crimes. Part of the problem is that crime scene characteristics do not seem to fit into neatly bound categories, but may fall along a continuum, and particular crime scene features do not appear to be reliably associated with particular criminal personality types. In an analysis of 21 American and European profiles created over several years, researchers found that more than 80% of the statements made by profilers were unsupported, and nearly half of the statements could not be verified even after conviction. Most crimes are solved using old-fashioned police work, or slip-ups made by criminals, 
And even when a suspect fits a profile, police still need to pursue evidence in order to be certain that they have the right person. And once the snowball started rolling down the hill, you know, how do you stop it? Because it doesn't matter if it's a little story or a big story. If you get it wrong, it's going to hurt somebody. One of the dangers of profiling is that it can create tunnel vision and investigators' attention can be diverted from other plausible suspects who do not fit the profile. All of this is just a small drop in the bucket when it comes to the mounting research indicating that profiling may not actually be accurate or reliable. Perhaps someday we will live in a world like the one depicted in Philip K. Dick's Minority Report, where crimes can be seen in advance and criminals caught with certainty, although even a system like this has clear problems. But for the time being, there is no reliable way to fight crime with our minds alone. Thank you for listening to Psychologia. This episode was created and produced by me, Amaya Perda, with writing help and voice acting from Mario Rivera and original sound design and music composition by Cameron Carter. You can find all episodes of Psychologia on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Take a moment to write us a review. It really helps us out. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychologia Podcast or Twitter at Psychologia Cast and visit our website for show notes and supplemental materials or to subscribe to the Psychologia Report at psychologiapodcast.com. We'll be back next time with another episode exploring the science behind why we do what we do. <laughs>